0: we're at the point where it's at least become culturally taboo to judge people for getting help for their mental health in most pockets of our culture, not in all, obviously. But what we haven't gotten across is that it really does help. And and I say that because when's the last time you saw somebody with trauma depicted in movies or on TV who had been through it and been treated for it and was doing well without also having uh, had some huge act of redemptive heroism. I'm Matthew Philp.
1: I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier.
0: And this is Tell Me About Your Father,
2: a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique.
1: We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff.
2: Hi, this is Matthew Philp. In 2017, President Obama in his final Oval Office interview was asked who gave him hope for the future of the country, and Jason Kanders was the first name he mentioned. The former Secretary of State for Missouri and the first millennial elected to statewide office and narrowly defeated candidate for the U.S. Senate was suddenly thrust onto the national stage and for all intents and purposes was planning a run for the presidency. But in 2018. After having already tempered his political ambitions for the presidency, instead running for mayor of Kansas City, a race that he was favored to win, he suddenly stepped back from public life to deal with the severe PTSD he experienced as a result of his work as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan, where his job included monitoring groups and individuals suspected of corruption, espionage, drug trafficking, and facilitating Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. After undergoing treatment at the VA, Jason decided not to return to politics and instead started working with the Veterans Community Project as its president of national expansion. He also hosts the Majority 54 podcast with Jason Kander and Ravi Gupta, where he and his guests explore how Democrats can talk about divisive issues with people who voted for Donald Trump. Jason is the author of several books, the most recent of which is his memoir, Invisible Storm, published by HarperCollins and written in collaboration with his wife, author and businesswoman. Diana Kander. On this July 4 episode of Tell Me About Your Father, I talked with Jason about what it was like to face and write about his trauma, how recovering has helped him be a better father to his son and daughter, the legacy passed to him from his father, grandfather, and great uncle, and what kind of president he saw himself as, and perhaps still does. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason Kander. I want to talk to you about your kids in just a minute but just diving into the invisible storm what really struck me about this book is how candid and matter of fact you are about the very serious ptsd that you experienced and the fact that you're still making progress can you describe the point in your recovery where you knew that it was okay to write about this for the public and was your subconscious like ready to let that information out in its entirety on the page
0: Mm. no that's a fantastic question um both of them um so i don't remember well i do remember when i decided okay i think i'm ready to write about this but what i remember happening first was you know i think like maybe five six months in when i realized like oh i'm I'm really getting a lot better, and I'm making a, a real improvement. And 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 I started to just in general in my life was feeling like, okay, I I'm starting to be able to see a clear picture of what my future looks like. Uh, I remember the part of it was, and I wrote about this a little in the book, that I I wanted to play a role as somebody who could mm, sort of um, model is too strong a word, but be an example of post traumatic growth, and and. I was aware that that would probably at some point be a book and that I would write. At first I figured, you know, it was going to be some interviews and and some speaking and things like that. Um, I wasn't in a hurry to do a lot of it. And that's a thing I talked a lot about in the book is like getting myself to go do it. Not because it was difficult to talk about, but in my case, because I was worried I would like it so much. And that had been sort of kind of a drug strategy in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I had used, um, adulation and attention as uh, self-medication in the past. And I was just worried about tempting that addiction. Um, but th- then I, I, you know, I did a couple of things, my wife and I a- at one point did like an op-ed about trauma and our experience. And, and then I did a couple other things where I wrote about it. And then, um, it, interestingly, uh, to your question about when I realized I was ready, um, what happened was, is I had started to engage politically again, and I had actually, I think, launched, like rebooted my podcast. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to be back out in the world. I was doing the work I do now with veterans, and I was like, I'm, I'm ready to be back out in the world speaking and doing things and giving my opinion. And I had, I had this, uh, actually, more of a policy thing that I had written, just a, a, like sort of a take on national service. And I had written up this book proposal and I took it to my agent and he really liked it. And he went and he shopped it to publishers and I'd already had a a best-selling book. So, you know, it made sense. Okay, here's Candor; He's ready to do a second book. And, you know, it got, it got a warm response in the sense like it got a polite response. A lot of people were like, this is nice. It's kind of interesting. Uh, But almost every single publisher that my agent took it to was like, yeah, is he going to write about PTSD or what? Right, And and I, I remember I, I bristled at that because I was like, you know, at some point I am, I'm not ready to write it. My story's not done. I, I'm not ready to tell the story yet. And so we put that off for a little while and I kind of lost interest in the first part, the first proposal, the the first book I was going to do. And my agent kept coming back to me and he, and to his credit, his name is Mel Berger. He's at William Morris Endeavor. And, and Mel was like, look, uh, I can see where you're, hesitant to take on something like this, to tell this story. He's like, I think you're going to help a lot of people if you'll just try it. And he, and so what he said was, he was like, what would you need to do in order to do this? And so with my first book, I, you know, my first book wasn't hard to write. I mean, it was like an escape from me when I was at 30,000 feet going all over the country, getting ready to run for president. I could open up my laptop and I could basically type into the book, the stories I'd been telling on the stump from my life for years that you know, resonated with people. And, and so the book, it wasn't hard to write. It was kind of fun. Um, this book was much harder. So he was like, what would you need? And I said, well, um, maybe if I could start with just having a bunch of conversations with my cousin, Sam, my cousin's a a writer, uh, and I've known him my whole life. He's my first cousin. I was like, you know, maybe if he and I could just have a bunch of conversations and he could help me figure out how I would tell this story, like how I would, what would be the device? How would I arrange it? Which events do I leave in? Which do I not? And as I started to do that, I started to realize, uh, just how important the story was and how beneficial it could be to people. And then I got excited about it and it was still difficult to do obviously. Um, but I, but I, I, from the moment that I started doing that, I realized how valuable it could be. So that was like, oh, 2020 sometime. Um, and so it took me about eight months. Um, and then, uh. You, I forgot well, your second question because I no, talked no, for so no. long. It, what was it,
2: Matthew? That's really kind of fascinating that you actually went and worked with your cousin. Because I, the reason I asked this is because I did a podcast episode for this podcast a couple of weeks ago. It took me six months to do just about how my father's death, which was uh, like trauma in my childhood, sat in my body, how it Im- impacted me today. I was ready to talk about, mm-hmm. talked about it with friends and therapists for years. Not new information. It took me so many attempts. I was completely willing to sit down and be like, tell it how it is. I'd have to go, nope, you skipped over that. You didn't say the full story. And I had to go mm-hmm. back three times and be interviewed by a woman uh, that I was collaborating mm-hmm. with. So it's sort of like the difference between my intellectual willingness to do it and my own like emotional state being like, not, not ready to talk about that yet, but made it happen anyway. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if you experienced that kind of reticence
0: that emotionally. Mm. Yes, somewhat. For me, you know, I had, by the time I was ready to, to write the book, um, I had talked about my trauma in therapy so much, um, that I, I really had a real sense of that trauma. But what I also had by that point was i had had several months to think about my experience of living with that trauma, which I hadn't, you know, I had talked about in therapy a bit. But really, I guess what one of the things that benefited me a lot was as a public person, when I made the announcement that I was going to step back and go get help, my wife Diana and I, we we heard from thousands of people about their own issues and their own trauma. And, and then a lot of people in our lives who we didn't know had experienced these things um, started talking to us about them. And so just in my day-to-day life. I was having a lot of conversations with people uh, about what it mm-hmm. feels like to have trauma and what it feels like to be high functioning and yet be struggling with your mental health. and so i I, I had just thought about it so much and had so many conversations that I do think it poured out of me somewhat naturally. Um, it was not easy because, and the, interestingly, for me, the hardest parts to write about were not the uh parts where i was experiencing trauma or my wife and i were you know growing apart in our marriage at, at times or we uh you know spoil. we're still together and she's you know very much she's in, in, the, in the book, book for yeah, those I was listening gonna say. um it, it, it yeah it's, i mean it's books is, the book is among other things kind of a love is, story yeah. the other version of this question i get a lot um is boy that must have been really hard to write the stuff about like you know having hypervigilance and." not being able to sleep because of the night terrors and all that. Or, or or when I give a little talk about it, people are like, are you okay? That was, must've been hard to talk about. And what I always say is, you know, that stuff's really easy for me to talk about what's really not hard, but anymore, but what does affect me somewhat emotionally when I talk about it and I have to process it is when I talk about my trauma, when I, when I talk about, being in Afghanistan or now you know the work I've done um with Afghan evacuation right. stuff when I talk about that that spins me up so the hardest part of the book um is, is so as you know I didn't want the whole book to be like a combat memoir so I dedicated a single chapter to just a random single day in Afghanistan just because it was a day I remembered well but really just because it was important the reader understand what my day-to-day life was like there but I didn't want the whole book to be a war book um, I wanted the book to be about what it's like to have yeah. PTSD and to address it. So that chapter, uh, that took me a few weeks to write and that was really difficult. And I was, I, I did cause me to, um, you know, feel like I was in Jalalabad, Afghanistan all the time because, you know, you're a writer. So when you're in the middle of writing something, uh, it's like right there all the time at the top of your mind. Like, you you know, you may stop and you may finish at a good spot. But between then and the next time you sit down to write it, like yeah. you're thinking about it anyway. Well, if you add to that, that you're just writing about being in Jalalabad on a single day that you remember very well. I went about three weeks feeling like I got to finish this chapter so I can come home and not be yep. in Jalalabad. So that, and you know, and then there's some other flashback points um, in the book. So those were hard. Um, but other than that, the hardest part was just, okay, how do I relate this? It's hard to, it's hard to relate this. And and I feel like I, I'm proud of how I f- figured that out, but it, it was difficult. And I was really glad to have, you know, my cousin to coach me through some of that yeah. and that kind of thing. Do you think, and my wife well, as well,
2: I, I want to talk about, um, Diana's contribution in a bit, but I, I also just sticking with Afghanistan for a bit. Do you think that it's possible that you would have experienced something akin to this or some form of mental illness if you hadn't gone to Afghanistan and
0: hadn't been in war? Oh, of course. I think a, a large, much larger than we realize percentage of the population or than we acknowledge, um, is, is dealing with some form of trauma in their life. Right. And, and, and what I always deal with, uh, or what I always confront with people is people who will come up to me and will tell me about their bad car accident or losing a loved one, you know, like you lost your father at a young age or, or, um, you know, surviving cancer. There's so many different things. It could just be a a bad divorce, you know, and they will, they will almost every time understandably, I guess, feel the need to caveat, uh, this statement they're going to make to me with, you know, look, I wasn't in the military or I didn't go to war. And I always stop people. And I say, that doesn't matter at all. What I experienced is not relevant to your experience. Your brain didn't experience what my brain experienced. You can't rank your trauma out of existence. I tried for 11 years. Um, so trauma is trauma. So yeah, sure. Um, and I'm also realistic about the fact that, you know, I'm 41 years old. I, I am in pretty good health and I plan to live a pretty long time it's probably going to be other stuff that happens that I'm going to need to deal with. And and so I'm grateful that I now have the tools uh, to deal with that. So um, would I have, you know, necessarily experienced it without the intervention of trauma? I don't think so. I don't know for sure. Um, But yeah, but you know, I can't really know.
2: When I read your description of PTSD, and you describe it, I think what accurately as a bad house guest, it moves in, trashes the place, then gaslights you into thinking that it was never there, but making you feel like you don't deserve help because you haven't suffered enough. I immediately went, I know exactly what that is like. Growing up, I had depression uh, living in Australia. Um, I think I had that, that thought going through my head quite a lot. And I think part of the reason for that is because in Australia, there's an enormous uh, masculine anxiety issue culturally. And also Mm -hmm. I think there's something of a culture of forced optimism. Do you think it's possible that that pressure to kind of just go, no, this is not real. I should, I should just suck it up, blah, 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 that it was, is also something to do with just being a man in America.
0: Oh, certainly. I definitely think that's a factor. Um, there's, there's no doubt about, about it. Right. Um, so that's, there's many layers to this, right? So one layer is that sense of, um, be, you know, be tough, be strong and all that. But I also, and, and I think that that is significant. Um, but I also, and, and I will add, I think it's really productive that we are now having conversations about what masculinity really means and that kind of thing in this country. Um, but the next layer to that, that I think we have to get to now in our culture, uh, is to get beyond telling people, look, it's, it's not a sign of weakness to get help, it's a sign of strength. I think that we've done a good job, and even the military community has, has largely done a good job of getting that across over the last five, six years, because before that, they weren't doing that well at all. But the next level is helping people to understand that, yeah, it's a sign of strength to get help. Oh, and by the way, it's actually also quite mm-hmm. worthwhile. Because I, I think that that's the other piece that's missing is yes we're at the point where it's at least become culturally taboo to judge people for getting help for their mental health um, in most pockets of of our culture not in all obviously but what we haven't gotten across is that it really does help and and I say that because when's the last time you saw somebody with trauma depicted in movies or on TV who had been through it and been treated for it and was doing well without also having uh had some huge act of redemptive heroism right like i recently saw top gun maverick um and Mm -hmm. i love top gun i mean i'm i was born in 1981 Uh, i love top gun right my dad was a a private pilot like i grew up on that stuff right and then and i took my son to it and and it's a great movie but both movies not to I don't think I'm spoiling well, the second one too much. Both movies are about a guy who has PTSD, undiagnosed, never gets treatment of any kind, but is fine because he did something great and redeemed himself internally because of some great right. act of heroism. And that ain't no, the way life works, but that's the story we're told. And, and the truth is, is that the, the heroism, so to speak, is turning around and confronting this monster it's not going to come from something else. And so that's the next part of the story we got to Well, and also just the idea that you are not your trauma,
2: you are a human mm-hmm. and your trauma is part of your story. But also like, you know, you're a lot of other things, your life co- goes on and you cope and you function and you experience joy anyway. Like it's not the only thing that defines you as a person. Yeah, yeah it's an injury. Yeah.
0: I, I use the example often of before I could go into the army, I had to get surgery and physical therapy on my knee because I'd had a a bad knee injury. Um, but I compare what I did, you know, going 11 years without getting treatment for PTSD to if I had joined the army, gone through all the training I went through, kept playing sports and all those things and never gotten the surgery on my knee. I mean, like I wouldn't be able to walk. Well, that's what I did to my brain for 11 years. If I had just, you know, gotten the injury treated earlier on, well, I don't think I would have had cause to write an entire book right. about it, right? I mean, it would have been a thing I dealt with, and I wouldn't have allowed it to get quite as mangled. as I, I mean, was. I always think of like depression as like diabetes,
2: you know, like it's a thing, do what you mm-hmm. have to do, make sure, you know, you do the right thing, acknowledge the issue, and then see, you know, move on kind of thing. But it's always kind of there. Anyway, yeah. you met with President Obama, you spoke to him at length, and he said to you, you've got what I have referring to you as a contender for high office. I feel like whoever is president seems to have this like quite broad paternal influence on the country. I mean, we definitely saw that yes. with Trump and white nationalism, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we saw that with Barack Obama. And I, and I remember actually when Barack Obama left office and people were like, no dad, can you, ca-? like people were calling him dad. It was like a weird meme yeah. kind of thing. I wondered mm-hmm. if during that talk with him, you talked about what the essence of it is to be president in that kind of general influence on american culture and life and when you thought of yourself as president what kind of father of mm-hmm. the nation did
0: you see yourself being that's a great question um the so the first part um i i don't i don't feel like it was a conversation that was really about um it wasn't really about governing the country that much. There there was. I mean, we talked about that. But you know, it was much more like, look, he had asked me to come there because obviously he uh, so potential in you. He yeah. saw something in me, which I appreciate. And he knew that I was thinking about running. Um and he wanted to talk to me about that. So we talked about that a lot. We talked about other things, family and writing and you know, we were working on books and all that kind of thing. I mean for me when I think about that meeting, I think about it as and, you know, the the few times I've had the opportunity to to speak with him, I think about it more as just a person who I really like, who I admire a lot, who I was so pleasantly surprised to find out that anytime I've spent time with him, it just felt like being with a really mm-hmm. good friend. You know, I, I've spent time with a lot of politicians, particularly a lot of high profile ones. I think it speaks extremely well of him that that conversation was one where I think we each did 50% of the talking. And that's not usually what happens when you meet with like a president, (laughs) you know? Um, And I think that says a lot about him. Um, As to how I, when I thought about myself as president, which, yeah, I definitely did, um, I guess I thought of it really guided in a lot of ways by my own leadership style and philosophy, which is quite heavily influenced um, by. Being a former mm. army officer um, so to me uh, when i think about what my leadership approach is it is one of uh a mix of motivation or inspiration and um earnestness it's always been my approach to be as open as i can with the people i'm trying to lead about what i'm struggling with but also what i think we're going to confront so I guess that was how I saw As it, it was like, I just felt like you got to level with the country and that's what I was going to try to do and then try to make it where we were all pushing the same direction, which I, boy, that's like the most political sentence <laughs> I've uttered in three years, but I can't think of a better way to say it. One might almost think that it's still a possibility. Yeah. I'm just not like trying to make it happen anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I'm just, I'm really enjoying my life. Mm-hmm.
1: Elizabeth, remember when we started making this podcast? Boy, do I. It was two years ago. Can you believe that? Two years. I can because we were just so focused on getting it right and learning all these programs, right, Mm -hmm. to try to make it perfect. If only we had heard about Anchor by Spotify. It's so easy. It makes everything better because... It's all in one place, everything you need. It allows you to record and edit the podcast right from your phone or computer. Tell me about the hosting capabilities. Oh my gosh, you can upload that thing to any of the platforms. How much is it? It's absolutely free. What? If only we'd known that part a couple years ago. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.
2: On page 99, uh, the very middle of the book, buried in a footnote, you let out what to me is an explosive fact that your great uncle is the iconic Broadway director, John Kander, Hmm. who wrote musicals uh, such as Cabaret and Chicago, um, which like, I was sort of like, why did I not put that together? That's astonishing. Um, You talk about how he told you once that going into therapy was like getting a master's in yourself. I just wondered how
0: else he influenced you in terms of like what it means to be a man. John is a huge influence on me. Um, and he's somebody who I'm, I'm very close to, uh, and have been since, you know, my whole life. Um, he's uh, just turned 95. Um, you would, if you met him, you would you would be like, this guy's in his seventies, I think, uh, you would never think he, I mean, he's literally writing a musical right now. Um, and, uh, and it's quite good. And so, uh, and the ways in which he has been a father figure, or I would say just, you know, a role model for me, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, John is somebody who I have learned this from probably above all else, which is if you love what you're doing, it's not work. And that you should always have something. Try to always have something that animates you. John's question that he asks most often, uh, I don't know if it's of everyone, but at least of young people in the Candor family, is what is their passion right now? He and his husband, Michael Albert, have a, a place in um, upstate New York. And we were up there this past summer as a family. And my son, True, who's eight, was playing around on the piano and stuff. And John was like showing him stuff. And it was really great. And John asked me, turned to me and he said, is True developed a passion yet? And I was like, you know, I, I was working through it. I was like, uh, boy, he, he's like me. I mean, I think, I think it's baseball. I think he loves baseball. And that, that was my passion as a kid and now too, really. And, and John's like, oh, okay. And then he turns to True and he's like, True, have you found something that you love more than anything else? And True just shrugs and goes, arguing. and, uh, and we had a good laugh about that, but John, you know, I remember, so my, my grandfather, John's uh, older brother passed away three and a half years ago now. And, uh, and my grandfather and I were extremely close. And, um, I remember a few years before that, uh, pop, my grandfather, um, he had his first big scare where he was in the hospital for several days and it looked like it might be the end. And I called John and I was giving him reports on it every day. And John said to me, he said, what does he have to live for right now? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. And he's like, you got to find something that my brother wants to get up for every day that he cares about every day. And my grandfather and my grandmother both were always very involved in the theater community here in Kansas City. And there was one theater in particular that they'd been very involved in. And so I called a friend of mine who was on the board of that theater and I relayed that conversation to him. And he was like, I've got it. And so what he did was they had their big like annual fundraiser coming up. And so he called my grandfather who was really pretty in and out uh, cause he was, he was in the hospital and he explained, hey, uh, we are doing our big gala this year. We really need a, hel- a lot of help raising for it. We are gonna name you and, Anne, my grandmother as our honorees at it, which my grandfather didn't care about but that was the vehicle for saying, we really need you to raise money for this. We really need you to get people there. And my grandfather said, okay. And like three days later he left the hospital and he had, you know, three more just solid, really good years. After wow. that. And, uh, and so that was another thing I learned from John is like, you can stay young if you, if you have something that animates you. And the last thing I'd say is, you know, John's 95 years old. And like I said, he seems like he's like 75 and that's because John does not care about age i'm sure he's in pain a lot right he stays super active he swims every day in the summer and everything but i've never like i've never heard john like when he gets up you know from a chair like audibly groan loudly even though i think there's a lot of pain there and then the other thing he does is he's in the theater community so everybody he's working with all the time because he's still working they're all very young and so to john you know his his peer group while most of the friends he grew up with have passed away his peer group is constantly the same age and that i think really sure. keeps him young
2: yeah and the thrill of i guess putting together a musical and seeing it work i guess there's nothing kind of i can't imagine anything more thrilling than that like just watching at work
0: yeah and i think for him to speak you know to the point of like the social aspect of life and the way it animates him john doesn't i mean he's fine with going and seeing the show once it's done and everything he knows it's part of the job what john loves is is rehearsing and what he loves is being with the other people in the theater and creating it together that's the part he loves and uh he's obviously a beyond a generational unique talent i mean it's hard to under it's hard to
2: overstate his importance in music of the 20th century yeah
0: Yeah. I mean, like he's got a gift that's, uh, I mean, John memorizes phone mm-hmm. numbers by the tones, you know, cause like you yeah, remember yeah, how yeah. phones used to beep, 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 you know, like he remembers phone numbers based on the tone of each number, but, uh, but he has done almost everything he's ever done as part of a team because that's what he loves. He, he, you know, he loves music, but I think what he loves more than anything else is being part of a group of sure. people creating. No, the theme in
2: your book is that you like people, I think you identify that the people that seem to be the happiest are the people that are part of something bigger than themselves. And I love
0: that in my work. And I think I've learned that totally. from John.
2: From what you said about your father in the How book, it seems like you have a pretty good relationship with him. Um, you mm-hmm. said specifically
0: he, he taught you the art of the hustle.
2: How so? Mm-hmm.
0: I'm extremely close to my dad. My dad is my hero. He's um, He has always been the most important man in my life. Um really blessed. That's the case. I know that's not the case for everybody. Among many other things, he taught me the importance of, of just hustling in life. And I don't mean the hustle, like to hustle somebody. I mean, like the, what it, the rewards uh, that come naturally from just giving your full effort to something. And we're here to talk about invisible storm, but I, you know, the first book I wrote, Outside the wire, one of the one of the stories um, that I related in that that I think is relevant to this is, you know, my dad was my baseball coach, and his dad was his baseball coach, and my dad used that really to teach me what kind of man he wanted me to be. And I flat out told I coached my son's team, and I flat out told him like, hey, you know, it's great that you're getting really good, and that's fun. I, I don't really care about that. I'm using this to teach you what kind of man I want you to be. And and I I remember going to a Royals games. So, you know, we're from Kansas City in the eighties and early nineties and watching George Brett, the only hall of famer from the Royals who we all idolize around here, watching him play. And while other dads may have been sitting there being like, look at his swing, look at the great play he just made all that. My dad would be like, all right, bud, watch when Brett grounds out, because what he wanted me to see was that when George Brett hit a one hopper back to the pitcher where everybody in the stadium, including George Brett knew that he was out from the right off the bat, that George Brett ran as hard as he could to first base and that there was never a play ever where George Brett wasn't giving 100% of everything he had. And what I grew to understand from all that uh, was that what my dad was teaching me was that if I could learn to love giving everything I had more than uh, you know being successful, then I would get a lot out of life because I would put everything I had into it. So that's, I think one of the most important things, um, I learned from him and just also, you know, I think I'm a pretty good dad and I, and it's because I had a fantastic example. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many times a day I am just recycling stuff that he did. Like, I'm just, I'm just saying what he said and doing what he did, uh, over and over and over again. I just do it all the time. I mean, that was
2: actually what I was going to ask you about. So thinking about like your son true, I actually would
0: really love to know how he got his name. What is the story behind his name? Mm. Sure. Um, so when my wife, my wife and I've been together since we were 17 and we didn't have our first child until we were 32. So we had a lot of years in there to talk about things like, what would we name a kid, you know, and we're from Kansas city where everything is named after Harry Truman and we were into politics, right. And we were Democrats, so still are. And so for a lot of years, we were like, well, if we have a boy, we'll name him Truman. Well, then by the time we actually were going to have our first child, the little boy, I was, had just been elected to statewide office. And, and as a result, I'd been exposed to some of the children of high profile politicians and you know, how their life was unique. And we, it became clear to us. We were like, do we really want to name our son after the only president from our state? I mean, aren't we kind of saying to him, we want you to live in this world when we didn't feel that we had any idea of what world we wanted him to live in. We just wanted him to be happy. And so then we thought, well, instead of naming him Truman, what if we name him after the Hamlet quote, to thine own self be true, uh, so that we could tell him, hey, you know, that we just want you to be true to yourself. And so, um, two quick stories about his name, then three actually, uh, but they're quick. First is my wife is a, a businesswoman and she's very good at it, she's an entrepreneur. And so what she did, because it was a little bit of an unconventional name, is she went on LinkedIn and found a bunch of grown men named True, and she made out a survey and convinced <laughs> them to fill it out. and uh, And so she market researched the name and found that these people had had very positive experiences with it. The next thing we did was we presented it to my grandparents who were still alive at the time, thinking, you know it's an unconventional name. They're older. Maybe they'll be conservative about this. And when we laid it we laid it out, my grandfather uh, said, "Oh, yeah." uh, that is part of the soliloquy in Hamlet, where it is a father's advice to his son. And then he proceeded to recite the entire thing. We're like, okay, that's his name. That's done. Um, and then the last thing was there, there were some folks in the family who, you know, it was an unconventional name and people were like, well, what do we call him? And, uh, and the first time I ever met president Obama was two weeks after true was born. And, uh, you know, it was backstage at a, at an event and I get introduced to him, you know, Mr. President, this is secretary of state, Jason Kander. And I come up and And we're taking a picture, you know, so it's like 45 second conversation. And he says, uh, he says, Hey, so what's new? And I said, oh, well, I actually, I I just had a kid and he's like, oh, boy or girl. And I said, oh, oh boy. And he said, uh, well, what's his name? And I said, his name's true. And he thinks about it for a second and he goes true candor. And I was like, yes, Mr. President, he goes, that's (laughs) awesome. And he fist bumps me. So then I send a text out to the entire family that just says true candor. That's an awesome name. The president of the United States, and nobody ever had a problem with the name (laughs) after that. Um
2: that is a really amazing story. Uh well, I mean, just speaking about that, you talk about being a lot more present with him nowadays. I wondered if and it like, I mean, it seemed like, you know, you you were talking before about how your dad, you inherit all these great kind of fatherly instincts from your father. Are there things that you do differently? to your dad as a result of ptsd
0: oh like uh how how yeah how it's changed Yeah, because like of when did I you am?
2: start talking to him about what was going on there are two stories in the book mm-hmm. that i think one of them is particularly heartbreaking where he looks at you at the table after you've been in recovery and he says this feels like before when you were stressed about mm-hmm. getting afghani allies out and i just was like oh i mm-hmm. felt that you know like mm-hmm. so you had made some progress there but like mm-hmm. how did you really broach
0: this very complicated
2: topic with him yeah uh
0: great question so for the first few years after i you know got help and stopped being gone all the time i mean this chapter in my life the first two years of it or so true was pretty young so it still is obviously you kind of got to give him what he can absorb so uh it, for the first couple of years he just understood it as dad was, uh, thinking about trying to become president and then decided that he would be mayor instead, and then decided that instead of being mayor, he wanted to have more time to be a dad and to be home with us. That's how, you know, he understood it in that very simple way, um, for a couple of years. And it's just funny, right? Because like, he's young enough, like he doesn't know that's unique. Like to him, he's just like, for all he knew, like all his friends from school, sure. his dads yeah. were like should I be president or should I be dad? You know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, which is great cause like he just took it very matter of factly. And then, uh, after I'd finished the book, uh, and we, and I knew when it was going to be published, um, I was like, you know, um, I think I need to have this conversation with him because there's going to be a lot of talk about this. Um, that combined with my working at Veterans Community Project and him going there with me had given me the opportunity over the last few years to gradually introduce him to the idea that, you know, war doesn't just hurt people physically. And so he understood that, you know, because he would meet the residents of our village of tiny houses, these formerly homeless veterans. And he understood that like, sometimes when you go to war, it affects you and it makes some things harder. So I kind of had that fertile ground. So uh, a few months ago, I, you know, he and I were sitting there playing with Legos or something. And I was like, "Hey, buddy, uh, you know, I've written this book, and, and I want to talk to you about what it's about." And I think I'm having this momentous conversation. And I explain, you know, that Dad, uh, you know, is one of the people who, because I went to war, it affects some things. And he understood things like, like Dad doesn't like to be startled. He doesn't like to be snuck up on. He had context for that kind of stuff. And so I, I do this thing. I'm like, "So this, it's called PTSD, and I have it, and all this." And I walk him through this, and he goes, "Okay, cool. Um, I need a blue piece with like four things on it I'm like okay (laughs) like he just is like all right so I'll incorporate that information no big deal and and he did and it was fine and uh, actually like three nights ago uh the hardcover came for the book and he was looking at it and and he looked at the title and he said okay dad I think I get it like invisible storm because there was like a storm in your head and I was like yeah that's exactly right how'd you get that and he goes that the cover is just a picture <laughs> yeah. of your head. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, that's right. So that was interesting because it gave me the opportunity to, he and I actually had like a 45 minute conversation where I told him the, you know, very sanitized and very uh, PG friendly version of the book where I just explained things like nightmares and the stuff and how I, I had gone to a, a doctor uh, to help me with this stuff. And, and it was great because he's just kind of like, okay, yeah. got it that makes sense you know so it it's actually so i guess to your question how has it changed things as a father it the way i think it's made me better as a dad is i am so much more equipped than i have been at any point in my life to talk about feelings and emotions and to really think about how to talk about them so you know when my son has stuff that in the past i probably would have thought of as like whatever right like he's got some relationship drama with uh, his best friend from his class who you know you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. kids, when there's three of them, their relationship is different than when there's two of them. And in the past, I'd have been like, yeah, you know, whatever, buddy, I'm sure it's fine. Now, I take that old Mr. Rogers advice of children's feelings are just like adult feelings, and in fact, possibly stronger. And so I dive into that stuff with him. And I take every opportunity to like, let's talk about those feelings. Let's talk about how we navigate those. Let's use words for how that makes us feel. And let's remember what those words are so that in the future, we can draw upon those words to help us understand what we're feeling. So I, I think that's how it's made me much better as a dad is I don't gloss over feelings. I, I think feelings are really important and I'm teaching him that they're special and uh, that they're real and that we don't, we don't just run right past them or try not to feel them. And, uh, and definitely spending months in therapy equipped me to do that. Cause did you have conversations about feelings with your dad? Or even just the notion of happiness. Yeah, I did. No, I did for sure. Um, uh, my dad has always been very good about that. Um, and my mom too. Um, but I guess it's, you know, to go back to my uncle John's analogy about getting a master's in yourself, it's like, I feel like my parents had a bachelor's in feelings and they used it with me and I, and and I appreciate it. And I feel like you know, the last few years I I've right. gotten the masters in feelings. And so I'm, I'm bringing that to bear with my, with my kids and with my, yes,
2: wife. who I think, uh, it seems like your, your partnership is really extraordinary and I love that you share the space in the book where she gives her take on, or her version of experience that you were going through and how much it actually affected her. I remember when Pete Buttigieg was running for president, he would talk about like people who were in the military when you have someone in your family that's in the military, it's their entire family that's really serving because they're all dealing with that. The absence Mm -hmm. or, you know, as you've talked about um, so well in the book, any kind of PTSD that they come back with.
0: Yeah, it was really important uh, to me to have Diana represented in the book. I mean, and apart even from her first-person contributions, I mean, she just made the book so much better. She went through and, and really helped me tell the story in a way that, She is, she has a special talent and has always had this, whether it's this book or whether it's like in the past when I was giving speeches and she has a special ability to be able to see things from the audience's perspective and to help me clearly see that some parts that may have been really resonant to me and were hugely important moments in my life may not add anything to the audience's understanding. And, and so that was huge, but. Apart from that, is just sort of a fellow writer. A, she's a best-selling author who um, lives with me. <laughs> like that was super valuable. But on top of that, one of the things about the book uh, that was important from the way I wrote it, but also made it harder, but but really effective, is I was really careful to make sure that as I told the story, as you move along with me chronologically, as Jason, the character, the narrator, that. I'm relating the experience to you using only the language I had at the time you are in my story. So while I've been through therapy now and I have you know, the use of terms like hypervigilance and uh, avoidance and control and all these different things, I'm very careful not to use any of those terms to describe anything early in the book. I only describe it to you in the way I would have tried to mm-hmm. describe it then and only knowing what was available to me at that time. And in doing that, For the reader, if you don't have another person in there to say, and here's what it looked like, you know, then that's not as effective combined with, I really wanted people who maybe didn't have their own mental health challenges uh, of any kind, but who did know someone who did or had a loved one who did. I wanted them to also have a person in the story who was an avatar Mm -hmm. for them. They could relate to the story through them. Um, And of course, Diana, as the book unfolds and as our life unfolded, it becomes uh, clear that she did experience uh, secondary post-traumatic stress, which I also really wanted readers to know about because that's a quite real thing that we did not know about until I entered therapy. So for all those reasons, it was super important to me to have her in there. It's also important for people to understand like this stuff affects marriages. It affects marriages in a huge way. So for us to very candidly talk about how bad things got for us uh, you know, in the hardest points, I think it's important. What
2: actually really was astonishing about that wasn't that she felt uncomfortable. It's that if you read her account, she's having eventually almost all the same symptoms that you had and she's having the nightmares too. And Mm -hmm. she's afraid of certain things too. And she's becoming hypervigilant too. It's not a different set of symptoms. She's not feeling just sad and alone because you are so preoccupied she's actually just experiencing these war induced symptoms.
0: Yeah. And the way she relates it in the book is that, look, if every night you're being woken up in the middle of the night by your partner who, uh, you know, wakes up in a cold sweat and breathing really hard. And then they proceed to, as she puts it, then suddenly it's horrible story. Yeah, right. Time. Right. <laughs> and, Cause I, then I'm like, I'm, oh, I gotta tell you about this dream I just had, you know, this night terror I just had. Um, you know, it, it soaks into you after a while, like you're barely conscious and it gets into your, in your subconscious. That's just one of the ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. You say in the book, people who are campaigning for
2: power are doing it for one of two reasons to get their father, to love them or to do good for other people. I just wondered if with the exception of the Trump boys who in politics today is the most stricken with a
0: desperate need for their father's love. Oh, wow. Well, I don't know. That's hard. Um, I, I, I don't know that I could pick up. Per- I mean, look, I clearly think that that's part of what's been going on with Donald Trump and all the people, you know, and, and his kids, but not all, but it seems like a bunch of them. Um, I'm trying to think if there's somebody who I could point to and, and say that. I don't think I know enough of the histories to know that, but what I can tell you is that it's, it's often clear to me now when i see politicians who i can look at them and go ah there's a hole in that person and they're trying to fill that hole with right. external validation um you know and i i never lacked for a father's love at all but because of an intervening trauma i had a hole and i i tried to fill it with external validation um and and with a sense of redemption yeah, like yeah. with good works you know I, I i i try to i try to give myself credit now for something that i didn't in the past which is it wasn't just external validation i also felt like if i do good things in the world that'll make me that'll be have a redemptive quality which it turns out won't do it by itself you could but, have been a megalomaniac um, and you're not you
2: went how do i help my help people and like that's where you went for redemption you right go, you know some other toxic direction
0: yeah 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 thank you um but yeah look there's people who i see and i go i mean i mean she's like i mean literally like i bet you could think of even name somebody i i don't want to be uh harsh or why critical not? like of, why of not people, be but harsh like, or critical well i just i guess i'm i mean i am a, <laughs> I'm frequently I, it's not like i never do that i just mean i don't want to be sure, unproductive for no diplomatic. reason but, I, but i'll just say look here i'll give you somebody i'll give you somebody um i don't know what uh uh jd vance's history.
2: i have been following him yes, on your podcast with, you know, the stories you've been talking about And what a crazy metamorphosis yeah
0: yeah like and i guess i just look at somebody like that who seemed at some point to have a core value system um at least it appeared that way maybe that was a mirage. but and who has anybody who has been who is willing to completely sell out everything they seem to believe in in order to chase what appears to be validation exclusively uh, externally, that's a real problem. Like, and I mean, it's obviously a huge problem for the rest of us if it becomes a US senator. Um, but I look at a guy like that, and people are like, man, it's messed up that he might be a senator. And I'm like, yes, it is messed up that he might be a senator. But then when they say, I can't believe a guy like that can get to be a senator, it's like, no, 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 hang on. You are assuming that he is in a place where whatever achievement he uh realizes that that will somehow be uh absorbed by him and enjoyed by him and i i look at a guy like that and i think no nothing's gonna do it other than dealing well with if Glenn it close is. playing your mother in a film doesn't do it i don't know what can you
2: know like that was astounding right. i mean, I mean such, maybe that's what it is that was my theory i was listening to mm-hmm. your podcast i was listening to you guys talk about him and i'm like maybe he got a little drunk on the attention and then he he had his book, and then it kind of got up there, and then it didn't win, and then we're done. And then he flipped out a bit and went, "How do I stay relevant?" Jason, thank wow. you so much. Also, thank you for your podcast. I love your podcast. It is incredible. It is oh, so thank you. great. Thank it you. It's so yeah. healthy and good. Um, I appreciate your time. Wow, I appreciate your book. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Best of luck. All right, Matthew. Thank you for having me, man.
1: Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com, And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can go there to rate and review us, we'd love to hear what you think.